Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at MintMobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. This evening we have a pair of tales for you. A classic tale of grave robbing, a bloodthirsty creature, and the descent into madness, and a modern tale of two sisters who share the same taste in men, but have one very important difference. Our first story for the evening comes from our old friend H.P. Lovecraft. Howard Phillips Lovecraft was an American writer of weird science, fantasy, and horror fiction, best known for his creation of the Cthulhu mythos. Lovecraft's literary corpus is based around the idea of cosmicism, a personal philosophy and the main theme of his fiction that posits that humanity is an insignificant part of the cosmos 
and could be swept away at any moment. Through his adult life, Lovecraft was never able to support himself from earnings as an author and editor. He was virtually unknown during his lifetime, and was almost exclusively published in pulp magazines before his death. A scholarly revival of Lovecraft's work began in the 70s, and he is now regarded as one of the most significant 20th century authors of supernatural horror fiction. Works inspired by Lovecraft, adaptations or original works, began to form the basis of the Cthulhu mythos, which utilizes Lovecraft's characters, settings, and themes. Children of the Night, join me for H.P. Lovecraft's The Hound, first published in Weird Tales, February 1924. In my tortured ears, there sounds unceasingly a nightmare whirring and flapping, and a faint distant baying, as of some gigantic hound. It is not a dream. It is not, I fear, even madness, for too much has already happened to give me these merciful doubts. St. John is a mangled corpse. I alone know why, and such is my knowledge that I am about to blow out my brains for fear that I shall be mangled in the same way. Down unlit and illimitable corridors of eldritch fantasy sweeps the black, shapeless nemesis that drives me to self-annihilation. May heaven forgive the folly and morbidity which led us both to so monstrous a fate. Wearied with the commonplaces of a prosaic world, where even the joys of romance and adventure soon grow stale, St. John and I had followed enthusiastically every aesthetic and intellectual movement which promised respite from our devastating ennui. The enigmas of the symbolists and the ecstasies of the pre-Raphaelites all were ours in their time, but each new mood was drained too soon of its diverting novelty and appeal. Only the somber philosophy of the decadence could help us, and this we found potent only by increasing gradually the depth and diabolism of our penetrations. Baudelaire and Huysmans were soon exhausted of thrills, till finally there remained for us only the more direct stimuli of unnatural personal experiences and adventures. It was this frightful emotional need which led us eventually to that detestable course which even in my present fear I mention with shame and timidity, that hideous extremity of human outrage, the abhorred practice of grave robbing. I cannot reveal the details of our shocking expedition, 
or catalog even partly the worst of the trophies adorning the nameless museum we jointly dwelt, alone and servantless. Our museum was a blasphemous, unthinkable place, where with the satanic taste of neurotic virtuosi, we had assembled a universe of terror and a secret room far, far underground where huge winged demons, carven of basalt and onyx, vomited from wide grinning mouths, weird green and orange light, and hidden pneumatic pipes ruffled into kaleidoscopic dances of death, the line of red charnel things hand in hand woven in voluminous black hangings. Through these pipes came at will the odors our moods most craved, sometimes the scent of pale funeral lilies, sometimes the narcotic incense of imagined eastern shrines of the kingly dead, and sometimes, how I shudder to recall it, the frightful, soul-upheaving stenches of the uncovered grave. Around the walls of this repellent chamber were cases of antique mummies alternating with comely, lifelike bodies perfectly stuffed and cured by the taxidermist's art, and with headstones snatched from the oldest churchyards of the world. Niches here and there contained skulls of all shapes and heads preserved in various stages of dissolution. There one might find the rotting bald pates of famous noblemen and the flesh and radiantly golden heads of new-buried children. Statues and paintings there were, all of fiendish subjects, and some executed by St. John and myself. A locked portfolio, bound in tanned human skin, held certain unknown and unnameable drawings which it was rumored Goya had perpetuated but dared not acknowledge. There were nauseous musical instruments, stringed, brass, woodwind, on which St. John and I sometimes produced dissonances of exquisite morbidity and cacodemoniacal ghastliness, whilst in a multitude of inlaid ebony cabinets reposed the most incredible and unimaginable variety of tomb loot ever assembled by human madness and perversity. It is of this loot, in particular, that I must not speak. Thank God I had the courage to destroy it long before I thought of destroying myself. The predatory excursions on which we collected our unmentionable treasures were always artistically memorable events. We were no vulgar ghouls, but worked only under certain conditions of mood, landscape, environment, weather, season, and moonlight. These pastimes were to us the most exquisite form of aesthetic expression, and we gave their details a fastidious technical care. An inappropriate hour, a jarring lighting effect, or a clumsy manipulation of the damp sod would almost totally destroy for us that ecstatic titillation which followed the exhumation of some ominous, grinning secret of the earth. Our quest for novel scenes and piquant conditions was feverish and insatiate. St. John was always the leader, and he it was who led the way at last to that mocking, accursed spot which brought us our hideous and inevitable doom. By what malign fatality were we lured into that terrible Holland churchyard? I think it was the dark rumor and legendary, the tales of one buried for five centuries, who had himself been a ghoul in his time, and had stolen a potent thing from a mighty sepulchre. I can recall the scene in these final moments, 
the pale autumnal moon over the graves, casting long, horrible shadows, the grotesque trees drooping sullenly to meet the neglected grass and the crumbling slabs, the vast legions of strangely colossal bats that flew against the moon, the antique ivied church pointing a huge spectral finger at the livid sky, the phosphorescent insects that danced like death fires under the yews in a distant corner, the odors of mold, vegetation, and less explicable things that mingled feebly with the night wind from over far swamps and seas, and, worst of all, the faint, deep-toned baying of some gigantic hound which we could neither see nor definitely place. As we heard the suggestion of baying, we shuddered, remembering the tales of the peasantry, for he whom we sought had centuries before been found in this self-same spot, torn and mangled by claws and teeth of some unspeakable beast. I remember how we delved in the ghoul's grave with our spades, and how we thrilled at the picture of ourselves. The grave, the pale watching moon, the horrible shadows, the grotesque trees, the titanic bats, the antique church, the dancing death fires, the sickening odors, the gently moaning night wind, and the strange, half-heard, directionless baying of whose objective existence we could scarcely be sure. Then we struck a substance harder than the damp mold, and beheld a rotting oblong box crusted with mineral deposits from long undisturbed ground. It was incredibly tough and thick, but so old that we finally pried it open and feasted our eyes on what it held. Much, amazingly much, was left of the object, despite the lapse of five hundred years. The skeleton, though crushed in places by the jaws of the thing that had killed it, held together with surprising firmness, and we gloated over the clean white skull and its long, firm teeth and its eyeless sockets that once had glowed with a charnel fever like our own. In the coffin lay an amulet of curious and exotic design, which had apparently been worn around the sleeper's neck. It was the oddly conventionalized figure of a crouching winged hound, or sphinx with a semi-canine face, and was exquisitely carved in antique oriental fashion from a small piece of green jade. The expression of its features was repellent in the extreme, savoring at once of death, bestiality, and malevolence. Around the base was an inscription in characters which neither St. John nor I could identify, and on the bottom, like a maker's seal, was graven a grotesque and formidable skull. Immediately upon beholding this amulet, we knew that we must possess it, that this treasure alone was our logical pelf from the centuried grave. Even had the outlines been unfamiliar, we would have desired it, but as we looked more closely, we saw that it was not wholly unfamiliar. Alien it indeed was to all art and literature which sane and balanced readers know, but we recognized it as the thing hinted of in the forbidden Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul Alzared, the ghastly soul symbol of the corpse-eating cult of inaccessible Lang in Central Asia. All too well did we trace the sinister lineaments described by the old Arab demonologist, 
Lineaments, he wrote, drawn from some obscure supernatural manifestation of the souls of those who vexed and gnawed at the dead. Seizing the green jade object, we gave a last glance at the bleached and cavernized face of its owner and closed up the grave as we found it. As we hastened from the abhorrent spot, the stolen amulet in St. John's pocket, we thought we saw the bats descend in a body to the earth we had so lately rifled, as if seeking for more cursed and unholy nourishment. But the autumn moon shone weak and pale, and we could not be sure. So, too, as we sailed the next day away from Holland to our home, we thought we heard the faint, distant baying of some gigantic hound in the background. But the autumn wind moaned sad and wan, and we could not be sure. Less than a week after our return to England, strange things began to happen. We lived as recluses, devoid of friends, alone, and without servants in a few rooms of an ancient manor house on a bleak and unfrequented moor, so that our doors were seldom disturbed by the knock of a visitor. Now, however, we were troubled by what seemed to be a frequent fumbling in the night, not only around the doors, but around the windows also, upper as well as lower. Once we fancied that a large, opaque body darkened the library window when the moon was shining against it, and another time we thought we heard a whirring or flapping sound not far off. On each occasion, investigation revealed nothing, and we began to ascribe the occurrences to imagination, which still prolonged in our ears the faint, far baying we thought we had heard in the Holland churchyard. The jade amulet now reposed in a niche in our museum, and sometimes we burned a strangely scented candle before it. We read much in Alzared's Necronomicon about its properties and about the relation of ghosts' souls to the objects it symbolized, and were disturbed by what we read. Then terror came. On the night of September 24th, 19... I heard a knock at my chamber door. Fancying at St. John's, I bade the knocker enter, but was answered only by a shrill laugh. There was no one in the corridor. When I aroused St. John from his sleep, he professed entire ignorance of the event, and became as worried as I. It was the night that the faint, distant baying over the moor became to us a certain and dreaded reality. Four days later, whilst we were both in the hidden museum, there came a low, cautious scratching at the single door which led to the secret library staircase. Our alarm was now divided, for... Besides our fear of the unknown, we had always entertained a dread that our grisly collection might be discovered. Extinguishing all lights, we proceeded to the door and threw it suddenly open, whereupon we felt an unaccountable rush of air, and heard, as if receding far away, a queer combination of rustling, tittering, and articulate chatter. Whether we were mad, dreaming, or in our senses— we did not try to determine. We only realized, with the blackest of apprehensions, that the apparently disembodied chatter was beyond a doubt in the Dutch language. After that, we lived in growing horror and fascination. 
Mostly, we held to the theory that we were jointly going mad from our life of unnatural excitements, but sometimes it pleased us more to dramatize ourselves as the victims of some creeping and appalling doom. Bizarre manifestations were now too frequent to count. Our lonely house was seemingly alive with the presence of some malign being whose nature we could not guess, and every night that demonic baying rolled over the wind-swept moor, always louder and louder. On October 29th, we found in the soft earth underneath the library window a series of footprints utterly impossible to describe. They were as baffling as the hordes of great bats which haunted the old manor house in unprecedented and increasing numbers. The horror reached a culmination on November 18th, when St. John, walking home after dark from the dismal railway station, was seized by some frightful carnivorous thing and torn to ribbons. His screams had reached the house, and I had hastened to the terrible scene in time to hear a whir of wings and see a vague black cloudy thing silhouetted against the rising moon. My friend was dying when I spoke to him, and he could not answer coherently. All he could do was whisper, The amulet, that damned thing. Then he collapsed, an inert mass of mangled flesh. I buried him the next midnight in one of our neglected gardens and mumbled over his body one of the devilish rituals he had loved in life. And as I pronounced the last demonic sentence, I heard afar on the moor the faint baying of some gigantic hound. The moon was up, but I dared not look at it. And when I saw on the dim, lighted moor a wide, nebulous shadow sweeping from mound to mound, I shut my eyes and threw myself face down upon the ground. When I arose, trembling, I know not how much later, I staggered into the house and made shocking obeisances before the enshrined amulet of green jade. Being now afraid to live alone in the ancient house on the moor, I departed on the following day for London taking with me the amulet after destroying by fire and burial the rest of the impious collection in the museum. But after three nights I heard the baying again, and before a week was over felt strange eyes upon me whenever it was dark. One evening, as I strolled on Victoria Embankment for some needed air, I saw a black shape obscure one of the reflections of the lamps in the water. A wind, stronger than the night wind, rushed by, and I knew that what had befallen St. John must soon befall me. The next day I carefully wrapped the green jade amulet and sailed for Holland. What mercy I might gain by returning the thing to its silent, sleeping owner I knew not, but I felt that I must try any step conceivably logical. What the hound was, and why it had pursued me, were questions still vague. But I had first heard the baying in that ancient churchyard, and every subsequent event, including St. John's dying whisper, had served to connect the curse with the stealing of the amulet. Accordingly, I sank into the nethermost abyss of despair when, at an inn in Rotterdam, I discovered that thieves had despoiled me of this sole means of salvation. The baying was loud that evening, and in the morning I read of a nameless deed in the vilest quarter of the city. The rabble were in terror, for upon an evil tenement had fallen a red death beyond the foulest previous crime of the neighborhood. 
In a squalid thieves' den, an entire family had been torn to shreds by an unknown thing which left no trace, and those around had heard all night a faint, deep, insistent note as of a gigantic hound. So at last I stood in the unwholesome churchyard, where a pale winter moon cast hideous shadows, and leafless trees drooped sullenly to meet the withered frosty grass and cracking slabs, and the ivy church pointed a jeering finger at the unfriendly sky, and the night wind howled maniacally from over frozen swamps and frigid seas. The baying was very faint now, and it ceased altogether as I approached the ancient grave I had once violated, and frightened away an abnormally large horde of bats, which had been hovering curiously around it. I know not why I went thither unless to pray, or gibber out insane pleas and apologies to the calm white thing that lay within. But, whatever my reason, I attacked the half-frozen sod with a desperation partly mine and partly that of a dominating will outside myself. Excavation was much easier than I expected, though at one point I encountered a queer interruption when a lean vulture darted out of the cold sky and pecked frantically at the grave earth until I killed him with a blow of my spade. Finally, I reached the rotting oblong box and removed the damp nitrous cover. This is the last rational act I ever performed. For crouched within that centuried coffin, embraced by a close-packed nightmare retinue of huge, sinewy sleeping bats, was the bony thing my friend and I had robbed. Not clean and placid as we had seen it then, but covered with caked blood and shreds of alien flesh and hair, and leering sentiently at me with phosphorescent sockets and sharp ensanguined fangs, yawning twistedly in mockery of my inevitable doom. And when it gave from those grinning jaws a deep sardonic bay as of some gigantic hound, and I saw that it held in its gory filthy claw the lost and fateful amulet of green jade, I merely screamed and ran away idiotically, my screams soon dissolving into peals of hysterical laughter. Madness rides the star wind, claws and teeth sharpened on centuries of corpses, dripping death astride a bacchanal of bats from nigh-black ruins of buried temples of Belial. Now, as the baying of that dead fleshless monstrosity grows louder and louder, and the stealthy whirring and flapping of those accursed web wings circles closer and closer, I shall seek with my revolver the oblivion which is my only refuge from the unnamed and unnameable. That was H.P. Lovecraft's The Hound, as read by Jesse Holt. Little is known about Jesse Holt, though rumors have circulated that he was found frozen within a 20,000-year-old ice formation during an Arctic oil drilling expedition. This is purely speculation, of course, as the official record states that the entire staff of the camp perished in what was described at the time as the most savage polar bear attack in history judging by the mutilated and partially consumed corpses that littered the snow. Strangely, no bear tracks were ever found. 
Today, Jesse is a voice actor and tour guide with a passion for travel, and he's always happy to meet new victim er, friends. You can find him on Twitter at Jesse Holt Voice or on his website at jesseholtvoice.com. Thank you, Jesse. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Our second tale tonight comes from A. Morgan Penn. A. Morgan Penn is a horror writer with a passion for Southern folklore. Her horror stories have appeared in Crow Toes Quarterly, Miniskirt Magazine, and Teleport Magazine. You can find her upcoming work on Twitter at A. Morgan Penn. Listen with me, children of the night, to A. Morgan Penn's Sister Dead and Dearest. 
first published in Teleport Magazine, October 2022. prickle of fear runs down my spine as I comb through the knotted ends of my hair. It's gonna happen tonight. I flatten the front of my floral dress, hands sliding down my waist before flaring out at my hips. Womanly. The word arrests my mind. Grown up. Something Gretchen will never be. My eyes flit to the open bathroom door and back to the veiled mirror above the sink. It won't hurt to take a peek. I need to know what I'm working with, after all. I tiptoe across the cold, tile floor and nudge the door closed. I stare back at the mirror, heart battering against my ribs like it's trying to escape. It's trying to get away, too. Be nice, Gretchen, I say, tugging down the black veil. Another shiver creeps down my spine settling into a tingle just above the small of my back. I inch toward the mirror, moving as if my reflection is some skittish animal I'm looking to tame. I'm almost there, almost able to see her, when a barrage of knocks assaults my ears. I toss the veil back over the bathroom mirror and fly downstairs, my bare feet pounding against the hardwood like a racehorse. A sliver of golden hair and tan skin dances behind the kitchen curtains as he raps on the back door. Kurt. My tummy feels warm and full of butterflies as I invite him in. A puff of warm air blows in with him, giving me a taste of the sweltering heat he just spent the last hour walking through. A ring of sweat collars his shirt, and my eyes rove over to the frayed ends where his sleeves used to be. Strands of dirty blonde hair peek out from his armpits, and I remember I forgot to shave this morning. Maybe I could tarp back up to the bathroom and... Can I get some water or something? Kurt asks, wiping his face with the bottom of his black shirt. Sure thing. I run to the cupboard and pull out a tall crystal glass before running it under the tap. Thanks. He gulps it down in about three swallows, his Adam's apple bobbing as he does so. Kurt doesn't wait for me to fill it back up, instead going to the sink and filling it himself. He only knocks back half the second glass before setting it on the counter. My face flushes when he turns to me, his lips still wet with water and his hair plastered to his face and neck. Pretty, I think, as our eyes meet. I hope he thinks the same of me. He's got sharp eyes, hooded under the weight of his brow and half-obscured by his cheeks, giving him a chronically tired look. Like he's either just woken up or just stopped crying. 
That's probably why everyone thinks he's so mean. Sorry about your grandma, he says, as if the words themselves confuse him. Like he's thinking, what the hell am I apologizing for? I didn't do anything. It's all right. I mean, it was a long time coming, so not really a surprise. My voice sounds different, affected, as if I'm putting it on. Kurt nods, licking the salt from his lips and leaning back against the counter. His arms are more toned and his presence more dominating than I remember. He just takes up more space. Though instead of being repelled by this new development, I find myself that much more attracted to him. I step closer and I see his eyes investigating me as well, noting all the small but perceptible changes I've accrued in the last three months. Different bra that makes my breasts just a little more noticeable. Hint of lipstick on the curve of my smile. A smile I spent a week perfecting. Eyes framed with dark lashes and lined lids, and the thin cotton dress pinned around my rounded hips. He looks away, hand digging into his pocket. I know you couldn't really do anything for your 18th birthday, but... He pulls a necklace from his pocket, dangling it from his fingers, as if he's never held one before. I got you this. I cradle the silver locket in my hands, chest swelling with pride. I love it, I say, though I more so love the fact that he thought to get me anything at all. The fact that he bought it for me, and me alone. It's nothing, really, he answers, relinquishing the silver chain into my hands. I glance up to find a dusting of red across his cheeks as he averts his eyes from the whole scene. Thank you. I wrap my arms around him, and it feels like I'm hugging a furnace. He smells like sweat and grass and motor oil. I pull away and ball the necklace up in my palm. Look how much he loves me, I want to say, but I keep my mouth shut as he turns toward the sink. He glares down at the tap like he's debating whether to get another drink. Hey, he says, head jerking upward to meet my gaze. Can I go to the bathroom? I gotta piss. I nod and point to the stairs. Yeah, down the hall and to the right, upstairs. I can show you. He brushes past me. Nah, it's all right. Thanks. He pounds up the stairs with one hand on the railing and the other by the front of his pants. I wait until I hear the bathroom door click shut to speak. He's mine, Gretchen. I hold out the locket. Look, he even got me this. You can't have him, all right? It's still gonna happen tonight. There's no stopping it. Warmth radiates through my chest and up to my head, lighting my face on fire. I reach for the half-empty glass he left on the counter, nearly knocking it over before my fingers tangle around the cool crystal. I bring it to my mouth, positioning it exactly where his lips had been, and I drink. We've kissed a few times already, but always as goodbye. Never the long, passionate ones you see in movies. Just a simple parting of lips out in the summer heat. 
always a little sticky and uncomfortable. I pressed my thighs together, catching the beads of sweat forming between them. I could count the times he's kissed me or touched me or just really looked at me on my hands. He's not like other boys I've seen. He doesn't paw at me or beg for attention or tease. Instead, he treats me like I'm a venomous animal, like he's intrigued and slightly afraid. Good, I think. I am something to be feared. I pass the antique floor-length mirror on my way up the stairs. The mirror cuts an intimidating figure with its face draped in heavy red cloth. It looks almost sinister, sitting there in the corner by the landing, like a veiled watcher. Gretchen's gnarled stump peeks out from an uncovered corner at the bottom of the mirror, her skin just as pale as it was a decade ago. She doesn't try to copy me in that way, at least. I'm waiting for him at the top of the stairs when he emerges, his thumb looped around the front of his distressed jeans. It looks like he took time to wash his face and style his hair while he was in there. You missed a spot. I smile, plucking a shredded clover leaf from behind his ear. He smiles back, a puff of air exiting his nose as his shoulders slacken. I lean in, but he pulls away. What's with all the mirrors? He asks, gesturing to the bathroom, and then to the hallway mirror just outside Granny's bedroom. Why are they all covered up? Just a thing my family does whenever someone dies in the house. We have to cover the mirrors and open the windows for a few days, so the spirits don't get stuck. Stuck? My mind snags on the question, raising the hair on the back of my neck. It's just a silly old tradition, to help the dead move on so they don't haunt you, I guess. And you and your folks believe in that stuff? I shrug, shaking the goosebumps from my flesh. <laughs> my grandma did. And I guess mom went a little overboard since she died on my birthday. It's a little freaky, I guess. Oh? I inch forward until the ends of our feet touch. Does it scare you? Being all alone, here with me? He smiles. Does it scare you to be alone with me? No, I say, stepping on top of his shoes and peering up at him through my lashes. Being alone doesn't scare me at all. I'm never alone. I glance over my shoulder, half expecting to find Gretchen crawling up the stairs. Stay away, I tell her. What was that just now? He says, looking down my sightline before settling back on me. What were you looking at? I shake my head, curling my lips upward until they dig into my cheeks. Just thought I heard something is all. It's fine. His eyes dart over to the railing and downstairs. Do you think it's your parents? Could they be here? No. I run my hand down his bicep taking measure of the solid heat and throbbing pulse beneath his skin. It's fine. They won't be back until tomorrow evening. Kurt nods, though I can tell he isn't sold on the idea. 
I pull him closer to me and lean into his ear. Let's just go to my room, okay? Gretchen won't be able to bother us there. Do you believe in ghosts? I ask, peeling back my hand-embroidered bedspread. Granny loved to stitch anything she could get her hands on. Her embroidery hoop sits in the corner of my room, a half-finished handkerchief still stretched across it. My birthday present. Do you? He replies as he slips out of his boots. Sometimes. Old houses always feel haunted, even if they really aren't. Like creaking floors and rattling vents and all that. Just making sure you won't freak out if you hear something go bump in the night. He leans against the doorway, arms crossed and eyes focused on me. Bumps in the night don't scare me. I hear plenty of those at home. I'm not talking about firecrackers or next-door neighbors. I swear, it'll sound just like someone stomping down the hall or whispering outside the door. So if you hear any of that, just ignore it. It's nothing. Like clockwork, the air conditioner kicks on and cool air vibrates through the vents. Kurt flinches at the sudden hum thundering through the house. <laughs> See? I laugh and he glares back. For a second, I think I've upset him, but then I see the telltale dimples dug into his cheeks. You weren't lying. He smirks, ambling to the bed. I feel it dip under his weight and wonder what it'll be like to fall asleep next to him. Sweaty, I think, and tug down another layer of sheets. I crawl across the bed, wrapping my arms around his shoulders and slumping into his back pressing my face deep into the damp collar of his shirt. It must tickle, because he jerks and pulls me to his side to plant a kiss on my cheek. I turn my head and catch his lips on my mouth, dragging him on top of me. My hands slip under his shirt, trailing up the taut muscles of his stomach. I know his body won't be this tightly wound forever. He'll get older and fatter, with a pouching stomach and receding hairline but I'll get older too. Older and fatter and uglier. And that's what will make it so special. That we'll stay together despite the changes. That even if she tries, Gretchen could never imitate us in all our ugly beauty. Are you sure? He asks, squeezing where my hips meet my waist. I want to make you mine. His arms tingle around me like warm tree roots, pulling me close so that my body melds into his. We fit together like needle and thread. I nuzzle back into his embrace, his hot breath tickling the back of my neck. He twitches, arms tightening around me and legs flexing until his ankles pop. Is he dreaming? I turn to check if his eyes are still closed, but I can't see anything in the low light just the straight angle of his jaw and a few glinting hairs. I'm about to fall back to sleep when a thud echoes up the stairs. My pulse quickens and my eyes shoot toward the door. Open. He must have gotten up in the night, I think. Forgotten to close it. 
Another thud rings out, a floorboard popping in and out of place as someone jumps on the swollen slat of wood. Stay away, Gretchen, I whisper through clenched teeth. You can't have him. The thuds continue, dragging up the stairs as her nails gnaw into the floor. She pulls herself up slowly, her body thudding against each step. Gretchen, I whisper again, and Kurt squeezes the air out of my chest, his body twitching against mine. At least he's still sleeping. She sputters once she reaches the top of the stairs, hacking out a low laugh as she drags herself down the hall. I hear her skin scrape against the old wood, splinters digging deep into her putrid wound beds. Her breath comes out in rattling growls, hissing through the air like a crackling fire. She crawls to my door, peeking out from behind the white frame. Go away. She smiles, revealing a pockmarked imitation of my face behind her greasy black hair. I won't share him with you. She shakes her head and points a gnarled finger at Kurt. He's mine, I rasp out. She shakes her head again, limping through the doorway and sidling up beside the bed. What? She wheezes, the word catching in her throat like an eye on a hook. No, I whisper, a tear rolling down my cheek as she climbs onto the bed. I cannot move. Cannot breathe as she slides on top of me. She smells of iron and dust, like an old attic smothered in blood. Moonlight glints off her yellow teeth as she bends to lick Kurt's neck, kissing along his jaw, just as I did hours before. Kurt stirs in his sleep, twisting around me as Gretchen tries to recreate the love Kurt and I made. I always hated sharing with her, even when we were little, even before we were born. I took half her arm in the womb, leaving her only an indelicate stump to putter around with. Sometimes I wish I had gobbled her up entirely. Would have saved everyone a whole lot of trouble if I had. I didn't mean to hurt her when I pushed her down the stairs. I didn't mean to watch her bleed out as she writhed around on her broken legs. Didn't mean to lie about how she fell or how long I waited to tell. I didn't even mean to leave the downstairs mirror uncovered as life eked out of her. I just didn't want to share my toys with her that day. I just never thought I'd have to keep sharing with her, even after she died. That was A. Morgan Penn's Sister Dead and Dearest, as read by Heather Thomas. Heather Thomas is a jewelry expert by day and master of none by night, dabbling in costuming, art, music, writing, and narration. 
She is a lifelong fan of all things horror and enjoys reading stories and novels to her friends and family. When they let her. She lives in Denver, Colorado, with her husband and her spoiled rotten cat, Oni. Thank you, Heather. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Amanda Carrillo, Lessel Baxter, Orion D. Higra, and Paul Belcher, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Why not share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch? TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we haunt the dark corners of your mind with more Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.